Good morning, church. Let me get situated for a second. Church, I don't know if you know this, but you had a great opportunity this morning. Uh, I'm going to brag on David for just a moment. David, the guy leading worship for us this morning, received second place in, I had to copy this off Facebook, the Marcello Giordani Foundation International Vocal Competition this week. Right, right. Which is awesome. So I don't know what any of that means, but he also won an award for Best Italian Diction. So again, yeah. So we could have sung some Italian songs this morning, but for, for you, we decided to go with English. So no, that, that's, that's awesome. That's one of the things that our church gets to experience sometimes. I bring that up because this past week I was reflecting on my career thus far, my short career. I know you're laughing. Listen, it's been a few years. It's been about seven, eight, nine years. So I've been reflecting on this a little bit. And I was wondering, I was just asking myself, how many sermons have I preached? And most of you are thinking one too many, and I get it. I get it. But I was thinking, and and if my math is right, and I guarantee it's not, then I have probably preached about 300 sermons, which is a few. It's, It's good. After most sermons, I get feedback from somebody. Somebody's going to come up to me and say, good job, Jordan, which is always nice. Thank you. And if you want to do that this morning, I welcome it. So there you go. Twice I've had somebody walk up to me and say, Jordan, I hated that sermon. <laughs> which, yeah, twice, which means I didn't learn my lesson the first time, which is, which is fine. Twice that's happened, and then twice I've had people come up and tell me that my interpretation of Scripture was simply wrong, which is fine. I mean, that's, that's part of having dialogue here. vast majority of the time, people come up and they say nice things, which is, which is great. When I was the youth minister in Cisco, Texas, which was about three years ago, I had an opportunity to preach once or twice a month, and we had a Sunday morning service, Sunday evening service, so you're talking preaching two to four times a month. And there were two people that stick out in my mind from that time. One is a guy named Dwayne Hale. Dwayne would come to church, he would listen to my sermons. Dwayne and I just kind of thought alike. He was a history professor at the local college. He was an academic, so I could use some big words that he would know, and I would feel smart, and he would be smart, so it was great. Yeah. But after every sermon, Dwayne Hale would come up to me, and his comment was, Jordan, you're wearing a nice tie today. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That was always what he had to say. Another person that sticks out in my mind is a lady named Karen Garrett. Karen was the sweetest lady I think I've ever known. When Micah had, Micah was the only kid his age in school. Micah's my four-year-old. He's sick this morning, so uh, if you want to add that to your prayer request, that's fine. Uh, I would appreciate it. But Micah, when he was a baby, she would do the nursery class. And so she would be in there, and she would be dancing, or I say dancing, like clapping in front of him, doing the little puppets, teaching him all the songs that mean so much to us. Sweet, sweet lady. When I moved to Cisco, uh, she had just lost her husband. And they'd been married for 40-something years. Very close. She pulled me aside three months after I preached a sermon one time. It's like, 
Okay, we can talk about that if you want. But she pulled me aside to say that she was practicing what I had preached about. Like, oh, okay, good. Which sermon? <laughs> so we're, we're sitting there, and the sermon had been on silence. I had talked about silence one week. She said before the sermon, the silence that she was experiencing in her life had been unbearable. But after the sermon, she was able to find God in the silence and use that time, that quiet time, as an opportunity to spend time with God there. Reflecting on that sermon, I think it was terrible. I I really do. I think it was awful. But it goes to show that sometimes God has something to say and just pushes us out of the way in order to say it. text that we're going to look at this morning is Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. It's a text that you're probably familiar with. It's a sermon that you've, or a text that you've heard. Jesus is saying this. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Church, one of the things that we need to recognize, one of the things that we need to understand is that when Jesus got up to preach, which he did fairly often, he was a traveling preacher, when Jesus got up to preach, he was not giving people simply knowledge. Jesus wasn't a guy who just walked around saying, here's what you should think, here's what you should believe. Jesus actually taught people, this is what you should do. Jesus was someone who called people to action. The difference between the wise and foolish builders in this passage was not belief. Both groups of people had sat in the sermon, they had sat in the class, they had listened to Jesus, they had heard everything he had to say, and the difference was that one group of people, the wise person, the wise people, took that and put it into action. Makes me think of how it feels to tell someone you love them, okay? It's really, really nice to tell somebody that you love them. I've got a slide about that somewhere, and I'm sure I put that out. There you go. Knew I put that out of order. Telling someone you love them is great, but showing someone you love them is so much more important, right? Love is proved by what you do, not by what you say. So, by way of illustration, I want to show you something. This is a t-shirt. About 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago, about 9 years ago, Lindsay and I got married. And apparently, there are different ways to fold shirts. Did you know that? So, here is the correct way to fold a shirt. You fold it in half. (laughs) Then you fold it just like that. Over one more time. Yeah, so it's nice rectangular, you can stack it in your drawer, like sideways. It's, it's brilliant. It's the right way to do it. 
That's not the way Lindsay likes to have her shirts folded. <laughs> Lindsay takes a shirt like this, folds it in half, so we're right. We're the same together right there. But then I have to use this table. She likes to fold it in half like that and stack them on top of each other just like this. Sure, that's another way to do it. I went to, uh, yeah, seen people who work in stores who fold it behind, kind of like that, and well, probably not capable of doing that, but it looks something like this. And then there's the fourth way to fold a shirt, which is kind of crumble it up, <laughs> throw it on the ground. Yeah, I know. I know. I know some of you guys like doing it like that. When Lindsay and I were first married, we were trying to figure out how to divide the things that needed to be done from week to week. And so there are certain things that I hate doing, and there are certain things Lindsay hates doing. And folding clothes was one of those things that Lindsay just hated doing. She did not want to do that, so that was a responsibility that I took as her husband. And we fought over and over again early on about the way to fold a shirt but over time, over time, I start folding her shirts the way she wants her shirts folded. And when she does laundry, she folds my shirts the way I want them folded. Because actions speak louder than words. Telling her I love her is great, and she appreciates it, but she appreciates it even more when I show her by my actions. We show our love by our actions. And when Jesus had preached this sermon on the side of a hill, when he was done, he got to this place, and he's telling this story. And in the story, he is calling people to action. Knowledge should lead to action. Jesus is telling us that we ought to take seriously what he is calling us to do. Not to believe, but to do. So let's dig into this passage a little bit this morning. Let's, let's just consider this passage a little bit. So there is a wise builder and a foolish builder, right? Matthew 5, 38, or well, no, not Matthew 5, 38 yet. There's a wise builder and a foolish builder. There are two paths. You see this all over the place in wisdom literature. When we looked uh, Earlier this summer, this past summer, we talked about wise and foolish, how those two things are, tend to be opposites, and how Jesus is painting a picture here that the wise person is the one who takes action. And building a house, building a house is a metaphor for building our lives. Our houses and our lives are not built on simply believing what Jesus said, but on doing what Jesus said to do. The truth value of Jesus' teaching is not found in simply hearing it, but in doing it. How are we going to withstand the rain, the winds, and the floods? We build our lives by doing what Jesus has called us to do. I'm becoming more and more convinced that the truth value of Jesus' teaching is not fully known until we live it out. And so another way to kind of think about that, we know some truths by experience, right? Yes, Jordan, we know some truths by experience. So for instance, how do you know that the phrase sleep like a baby was made up by someone without a baby? <laughs> right? Like, yeah, you know that. 
How do you know that people can get addicted to Facebook? Yeah. By experience, I understand. How do you know that you should wait 20 minutes after a pizza's cooked to take the first bite? How many times are you going to burn the roof of your mouth? We know that by experience. How do you know that shaving cream is necessary? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're all laughing, but you know, you know. How do you know that NASCAR is the perfect TV program for Sunday afternoon naps? <laughs> experience. Experience teaches us things over and over again. Some truths we know because we've experienced those truths. And so what I want to do for just a moment, I brought this in here because I couldn't find a soapbox. So I want to get on my soapbox a little bit. And this is what it's going to look like this morning. This is my soapbox. Church, we don't need more Bible studies. Oh, I know. Hear me. We don't need more Bible studies We need more action. We don't need to consider what Jesus said a little bit more. We need to do what he said a whole lot more. There you go. That's my soapbox. Our Enlightenment heritage has to be called into question. The Enlightenment teaches us the more we learn and study and think and think, the more that we'll be better. But we know these stories. We know the commands of Jesus. That's not a call to stop studying, by the way. Continue reading your Bible. But until you start doing these things, do we really know if it's true? So, we ought to take this seriously and consider what Jesus is calling us to do, right? If we're going to take seriously that the Bible is, that Jesus himself is calling us to be people of action, we need to consider what the Bible says. So, let's do that. This passage in Matthew 7 comes at the end of a famous Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was standing on the side of a mountain, according to Matthew, and he starts talking about all of these different things. Bruce has been teaching a class in here on Sunday morning, so a lot of you are probably thinking about this this really with fresh eyes right now. So I want to take one of the teachings of Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount and explore what would it mean if we did what Jesus tells us we are to do. So the passage that we are going to look at is Matthew 5, 38. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. When Jesus says that, go back, I'm going to go bit by bit through this one, so... These guys do a great job on Sunday morning, by the way, for for trying to follow Patrick and myself. That's that's not an easy task. But anyway, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And what Jesus is saying there, he's appealing to these people's religiosity. He's saying, you guys know this. Like, deep within yourselves, you know that this is true. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Because these people know the law. They know what it commands. So Jesus continues, but I say to you, Jesus is placing himself where a lot of rabbis would place themselves, people that are in definitive interpreters of the law. But Jesus is about to change what that passage means entirely. He says, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. 
That's a tough passage. That's a tough teaching. Not because it's hard to understand, because it's hard to do. I got really into the political stuff that was going on this past year. I'd watch the news fairly regularly, keep up with what was going on. And there was one point in time where Jeb Bush, that's a name you haven't heard in a while, was asked an awful hypothetical question. He was asked, if you could go back in time to when Hitler was a baby, which is a ridiculous question, but if you could go back in time to when Hitler was a baby and kill baby Hitler, would you do it? Yeah, who's the reporter that asked that question? I really don't know. But his response was, I would have to. Left the soapbox up here for a reason. Yeah, was going to use it again. And I, I want to be careful the way I say this. Isn't violence the worst response? Don't we teach our kids that? Like, the other day, Micah was getting in trouble for doing something, and he reached back to hit me. And, like, no, Micah, that's not how we respond. Violence is weak response. Brian Zahn, uh, he's a Christian uh, preacher that I follow. He said this on Twitter recently. He said, if the world could be saved by killing bad guys, Christ would have come as a warrior. Instead, Jesus went to the cross. Just consider for a moment, we are created in God's image. What, what does that mean? It means that somewhere within us, God has made us like him. The first thing we learn about God is that God is a creative God. A God present over the waters, present over the chaos, is able to bring order out of that by creating life, by creating structure, by creating goodness. Our God is the God who created the worlds. God created the penguins and giraffes and sunshine and rain. All of it is God because God is creative. And so shouldn't we be a people in God's image who exercise some creativity from time to time? Shouldn't we be people who exercise that? And isn't violence pretty much the least creative of all options? I really think it is. When we come up with solutions to problems, when we come up with solutions to violence, when we come up with solutions to injustice, to hatred, to whatever the problem is, our responsibility as God-filled people is to come up with creative ways to bring God glory, and violence isn't going to do it. Soapbox off. There you go. It's a hypothetically ascent to go back and kill a child who would grow up to become Hitler, who is awful, is to take the easy road, the violent road, the road that we see the people condemning Jesus taking. So what creative responses would we be capable of? I don't want to just leave that hanging there. I, I came up with a scenario. So I was thinking about this. I was thinking, how would I answer that question, particularly in light of Jesus? And so here, just a, here's a solution. What if you went back in time, because time travel's now a possibility, right? Given the question. What if you went back in time and moved Hitler from Germany to Canada? They're not a violent people. It would be great. Would he have the same goals and tendencies? 
Would the world have experienced the same tragedy? And most importantly, would you have to have someone resort to taking the life of a child? Violence is not a creative option, even in this ridiculous hypothetical scenario. Jesus is painting a picture of turning the other cheek and not resisting an evildoer. And it's one that would be so surprising with the creativity of it that it would change the situation instantly. Somebody smacks you on the cheek and you give them the other one to do that as well. They're not going to know what to do. That's the God we serve. But that's not where the passage ends either. Someone wants to sue you for your coat, give your cloak as well. Wow. I have a friend, Neil. I've been uh, partnering with Union Gospel Mission the last couple months. Neil's a guy that I've been in this mentorship relationship with uh, for a while. So I, I took this passage to Neil, and I was like, Neil, what do you think of this? When you hear this, what does it make you think? And he said this. He said, Jordan, let's say that one of your friends says that you owe him your shirt. Okay? And he demands it from you right then and there. And so in that moment, you agree to go along with that. And you give him your shirt, but you also give him your pants. You're standing there in your underwear, and he is having to deal with the ridiculous fact that he has taken your clothes from you. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He is saying that the the response that you give can be so outlandish that they see that their requirement of you is too much. It's like, Neil, that's fun. (laughs) That's, That's a strange image. But I hadn't thought of it that way. Jesus said, if someone sues you for your coat, give your cloak as well. And if someone forces you to go one mile, go also the second. I'm sure you've heard that Roman soldiers could force you to walk one mile and they could make you carry, carry their luggage, carry their weapons and all of that. And this was the occupying force. This was the enemy. And so the command, if someone forces you to walk one mile, walk a second as well. Wouldn't the creative love of that just astound them? Jesus continues, give to everyone who begs from you. Everyone who begs from you. Where are the qualifiers? I know, this is getting personal now. It's personal to me. In a world that holds materials back from each other, are we any different In a world where hoarding and wealth go hand in hand, are we courageously and sacrificially generous? Are you willing to deny yourselves, as Patrick talked about last week, for the sake of others? Give to everyone who begs of you. And do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. So your Uncle Jack, who made up, but... Your Uncle Jack, who's just hard to get along with and you only see a couple times a year and he's always asking for money. Anyone. What about that annoying neighbor who who makes too much noise at night, who's never quite doing what makes your neighborhood look the way that you wish your neighborhood looked? Anyone. What about that coworker with all the problems that they just constantly bring with them everywhere you go? Anyone? What about your frenemy? 
<laughs> Name you know. That person that you can, that you pretend to be friends with, but deep down you just despise. I think Jesus is saying anyone. Give to everyone who begs of you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. I want to take you back to what Patrick said last week. He set the stage for where we're going in this series, and I think he did a great job with it. What he said will help us define the parameters of of this entire idea. The standard of self-denying love is the cross. And until we reach that standard, which we won't, we need to give more. We need to do more. We need to go further. We need to turn the other cheek. Church, the wise person builds his house. The wise person builds her life by doing what Jesus has called us to do. Let me say that one more time. The wise person builds his house. The wise person builds her life by doing what Jesus has called us to do. The foolish person believes what Jesus said, but never actually does it. What kind of life are you building? What kind of house are you building? Church, the challenge of being a disciple of Christ is simply this. Will we do what Jesus is calling us to do? Will we do what Jesus is calling us to do? I want to end in a prayer this morning. As you think about this, think about the ways that God is calling each of us to be people of action. Uh, And then after this, we'll be dismissed. Lord, we pray for your strength to take seriously what you have called us to do. Help us to not resist an evildoer, to give more than is demanded of us, and to give to everyone who asks. God, have mercy on us when we fail. It's in the name of of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you all for being here this morning.